Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Warden's Watch Podcast is now on Patreon, combining the Thin Green Line Podcast and the Warden's Watch Podcast on Patreon to bring member-exclusive extra content, both video, audio, and with product deals as well. Become a member to support our podcast and get something extra. Search Warden's Watch Podcast on Patreon. Welcome back to the show, everybody, and we are very excited and honored to have a special guest on the Thing Green Line podcast this morning, our friend John Garnieri, who you may know as John Silverspear. Uh, you've heard me on his show several times and all the good work he's doing on his Spear Talk podcast, which we're going to talk about today. John, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Awesome, man. Good to be uh, finally jump on here, Wayne and John, and uh, like like myself, you guys started this and started doing all this podcasting and doing all the work you're doing at the start of the pandemic. It's kind of cool to see the progression that people are actively still doing this stuff. And uh, I know we both lost uh, friends and family throughout the last couple of years, but this type of content we do, I think, and I'm glad it's still staying around. And uh, if people get something out of this episode or a previous episode, whoever it is, I mean, that we've done our job. So I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, yeah some of us are still doing it, John. There's a lot of podcasters that fall <laughs> off. They started and dropped and... You know, when, when you get that first uh, listenership and you only got 200 people listening and it goes on for six months with 200 listeners, that that's when I think they say, yeah, this, this is, <laughs> this isn't for me because it is, it, it's, it's, it's a grind as you know, it's, it's uh, to break the in and uh, to have that niche, so to speak. Well, to that point, it's you, I mean, you, we're all, we all have our full-time jobs. I know people retire and do different stuff, whether it's from a game warden to an author to security work. I mean, you guys are putting books out and everything. And it's like the amount of work it takes to effectively do a podcast. It, it's, I don't think people, re- people are always like some of my friends are like, well, I'm just going to get a microphone and start talking. Okay, do it, dude. <laughs> after, after, if you start, these people who do the podcast by themselves or just, I'm so enamored by that because I couldn't do that for more than two hours. I'd be, I would already talked about my whole life in two hours. 
And so when you bring it, <laughs> I'm, I'm like you guys, you have to bring in guests to keep stuff engaging. But the amount of work and prep that goes into, I mean, just what I have, I've had John on the show, uh, my show three times or maybe four times. And I want to have you on there, Wade, obviously. But even though I know you, John, I still have to do prep work. And I think people don't realize that, oh, you talk for an hour and hit record. But there's more, like, I have to mentally prepare to t- ask these right questions. And I think, like you guys, like, it's just the amount of work to do something. And it's a fun hobby. It's a passion of mine. But it's still work, right? It it, it absolutely is. And like you said, you hit it on the head on, on prep, right? I mean, we, we know each other. Wayne and I know each other really well. But even when Wayne and I are on our own show telling each other stories, we still do research, you know, because I've known Wayne for years, but man, there's so much details in you as you and I have developed it as friends, so much going on. And then you're right. The prep is intense. The production is intense. And if you don't have a good producer and a good uh, host or co-host, you're kind of dead in the water. So we, I'll give a shout out to Jay Amon from Big Buck Registry, mm. who's, who's Wayne and my uh, main man, you know, for putting all this together and editing it and getting the sound bites right. Uh, and like you said, we all have so many other irons in the fire. I mean, I'm going to jump ahead for just a minute, but we, we got to get back into your background. I'm going to ask you questions. You and I haven't even discussed face-to-face at a Shinedown show, let's say, right? But um, all of the, the background information that we got to get to put together that good story and really get into where it all started. And I still don't know a lot of those things about you today, which all of our listeners for the first time are going to know what is John G all about? What was he like as a kid? You know, when did he get this, you know, this itch to go into security? Because I know there's some some federal law enforcement service in your background. I'm not going to, you know, give that away yet, but here we are. So kind of take us back to you were growing up and you, and we've seen some of the, uh, you know, the Midwest farm areas and stuff, and we've shared some of that, but you've had a love for outdoors and conservation, which is obviously kind of the hub of our brand on this show with the Thing Green Line podcast and Warden's Watch, but you're doing a lot of good work through your podcast with your guests on conservation, not just in the nation, but worldwide. Go way back as a kid. When did you start loving nature and how did you get this fire, you know, to want to pursue it in a podcast and also I, I, on the road with your bandmates? I was very fortunate to have parents that in a whole family network that was very promoting about hunting and fishing, be outside. Like my mom, like I didn't have all the fancy toys. I, she was like, go make a mud pie. So I get all these pots and pans <laughs> and go play in the mud Did you and, go find, and go find <laughs> berries and twigs and pine cones to make like this cake stuff. And then she'd always be like, don't eat that raspberry. Don't eat that. That's poisonous. And so from a young age, I just love being in the outdoors. I still drink from the hose faucet from cutting grass. I need a drink of water. I, yeah. I just, I, I just find so much therapy in there. As a kid, you're running around building tree forts, having stick fights and stone fights with your friends, which I really don't condone that now because someone could have seriously got hurt. But the idea of going out in the morning and coming back at a dinner time, like that's a real concept that I think parents today or even kids don't really appreciate being outside with your friends playing tag and all that stuff and so i would do all that stuff and as i got a little bit older the first r-rated movie i saw my parents let me watch was predator and that's my number one favorite (laughs) movie Mm. and for me that was the first time i kind of got a a obviously it's fantasy but a look at what a jungle is like and so in my head i'm like oh there's snakes there's all these creatures and bugs and obviously hopefully it's not intergalactic shape-shifting uh alien out there but that was the first time i'm kind of like 
man, there's so much more to this world. And then from there, seeing that movie, watching that through my youth, I started learning. I, I had this interest to learn about Alaska and the frozen tundra and Antarctica. And then all my school projects, when they give you an option based on a book or whatever, I'm doing stuff on the Sahara Desert, yeah. uh, the rainforest, active volcanoes. I just, I just love the idea of nature and wildlife and all this stuff and I start just all again, like my projects and stuff, like you have to redo these required readings, but all my fun classes I took were all based on nature and wildlife or conservation, or you have six months to learn about a, uh, the, the Gobi desert. And so I got to learn about the vegetation, the, the circle of life and all this stuff. I just, there's just so much to it. And funny, as I get older and do all this stuff now, I, I'm actively involved with different organizations or try and get the word out about these people, whether they're game wardens or fish and wildlife or these people on the front lines dealing with illegal hunting or the cartels and all this stuff. And it's like, so two days ago, I'm, I'm watching up, upstairs in my room, uh, I think it's also Disney, Disney Channel. And they, they, they do this National Geographic stuff now. And I was like, you know what? I haven't learned about uh the the sea of cortez like i haven't really outside of my friends that do the sea shepherd stuff and so i watched this 45 minute documentary on the sea of cortez for the wildlife and all this stuff and i text eric bass from shine i go dude and we're all him and i barry from shine are always very like watching the nature stuff but i text eric i go man this is the coolest just watch this it's 45 minutes but it was the most surreal and him and i were just texting through watching this going dude nature and wildlife is so primal and vicious yeah and it's so unique and so here we are i'm 37 and i still have that fascination with learning and stuff i mean i don't do as much mud pies but when my nieces are around or little cousins we're still outside running around i mean my cousins and i when we go up to uh western new york where my mom's family's from we play manhunt where we're literally in fatigues or ghillie suits we bought at Dick's or wherever, and we're running around 300 acres trying to hunt each other at night. And it's just like the most, <laughs> it's so much fun. And I just, yeah. I love conservation. I love the wildlife. And I think it's, it's, I, I, for me, it's upsetting that kids don't appreciate it as much as they should, or at least put in the position to appreciate it. If they don't like the outdoors, they don't like bugs, so be it. But go out there and just walk around the yard. Like there's just something to it. Well, and, and you, you know, you talk about kids having even that opportunity now, you know, we, Wayne and I have talked about this on the show with other guests is with urbanization, so many kids just aren't exposed to having open spaces to go get muddy and dirty. You know, Wayne and I had the same background. We grew up on a, a creek that was, you know, two miles long and mom would say, go out and uh, oh. do your play. And we did war games and mission MIA and we, it was a POW rescue and fatigues and little play M16s and getting dirty and getting wet. It was awesome. You know, and it just gives you a respect and a love for nature of how beautiful, but how brutal nature can be right at the same time. Um, and I, I hope more kids get that opportunity. I know you in your work and us in our work as conservation, you know, mentors and hunter education, we're pushing that on kids as much as we possibly can. You know, Wayne, obviously with his children's book, yeah. uh, the, the different HE stuff we mentor, you know, throughout the country, but it's so cool. You were doing that growing up. And um, I know you went into security later after some federal law enforcement time, if I'm correct. And we want to talk about that. And, uh, you know, unfortunately you didn't go the game warden route because that would have been really cool, but you did something really cool in lieu of that. And let's talk about what brought you, you know, from that conservation background, loving the outdoors to where you started in law enforcement. Yeah. So I, I went to college in 2008. Uh, I went to Norwich university, which is the oldest military school in the country. Nice. Uh, 
the founder of West Point actually graduated from there, a little known fact. And so I did Navy ROTC for four years with the idea in my head, I want to become like a SWO or I want to live on a submarine because I've always been fascinated with <laughs> nice. like after Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues of the Sea, I'm like, how close can I get to the giant squid? And so I've always had this, I'm going to be in a submarine guy or whatever. My dad had a brain dander from sophomore year until 2009 spring. Um, I, they basically, the Navy was like, hey, like you, like you get to sign the paper here eventually if you want to do this and all this stuff. And I was like, I, back in my mind, I'm like, man, I really want to do this. But God forbid I get deployed somewhere or shipped somewhere and something happens to my dad, who's going to help my mom or my sisters? Right. And so I was like, yeah, whatever. So I still finish out the four years ROTC, the naval, the military, the 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 revelry formations, the marching, the uniforms. I loved. I thrived in that environment, but I knew I still wanted to serve others. And so my friend, two years prior, uh, joined the Secret Service. And he was on uh, the motorcade unit, so he, he was the front motorcycle anywhere that the uh, the beast is going at the time. The the limousine for Obama. Um, he was there. He's like, John, you're gonna love this. Pull your eggs in the basket because at the time I was like, well, ATF. I'm gonna kick doors in. I want to fight. Cartels, DA, ATF, FBI, so all those three-letter agencies. Um, I'm kind of like, oh man, maybe he's like, no, put all your eggs in the basket. You're gonna love it. You've always wanted to protect people um, and kind of be like that, uh, just to help people, right? And so I do it, and I get in. I basically start the process junior year in 2011, and it's a year and a half long. Pro- I mean, it's background checks, polygraphs, right. psyche valves, physical. I mean, they're overturning every stone. It's my polygraph was eight and a half hours. It took two days. <laughs> and they asked the same question 14 times, different ways. And after that, I'm like, God, this thing. It's like this is like this is stupid, right? And so a couple weeks later, I get the call, hey, you get in. And so you have to spend the four months in Glencoe, Georgia, uh, under the Department of Homeland Security banner. So you're training with like the Capitol Police people, Bureau of Prisons, DEA, ATF, all the agencies have to do like this kind of basic. Uh, course completion, firearms training, driving, uh, basic safety, trauma, EMT one type stuff. Um, and then if you graduate that, then you go up to Beltsville, Maryland uh, for another three and a half, four months, which is specific to Secret Service. So that's geared towards all the the basics, the self-defense stuff. A lot of that time of the stuff is jujitsu and Kramaga in terms of disarmament and stuff. But that gets tied into rope line security and opening car doors, how to survive a helicopter crash. And so we do all this training, driving on skid pads, the fitness, which is very big there, almost like a military type training. You have to do a certain number of push-ups, sit-ups, whatever, based on your age. And I thrived in that. And so you do all the firearm shooting uh, with MP5, the six-hour pistol at the time, and the 870, I think, Remington shotgun. So those three things, specific to the Secret Service, that everyone has access to at any given time, you have to be proficient in those. So we do all this training. And in 2009, or right before, after the first inauguration of Obama, I head there. And so I stayed there until May of 2014, uh, based at the White House, traveled the world and saw incredible stuff in places, and the Gaza Strip and Israel and all these crazy locations that you never had experience with or even you can't jump on a Southwest air. Well, you came right. right now to begin with, but you can't jump on a plane and go, I'm going to go to the Gaza, Gaza Strip, right? And so right. I have all these experiences. I went to Bethlehem, uh, like the, uh, the the tomb of Christ. You see all this stuff and it's like, man, this is surreal. And so I went through that 2012 
uh, Obama, Romney were campaigning. I was only home like 30 days that year. And so I got burnt out, not for my job, but just – so I, short, long story short, I went through a divorce as well. Uh, on the days I wasn't working, I was drinking a lot. I didn't want it. Like it was just a, it made me happy because I was going through divorce and yeah. I was tired from work. And in twenty halfway through twenty twelve, Charlie Sheen had just got fired um, from his yeah. TV show Two and a Half Men. Right. And my boss partner at the time now, uh, Chris Loudon, was Silver Spirit Security. I see him in the corner. I know what he's there for, right? And so I, I Charlie Sheen was great, whatever. But I'm more geared towards this guy. And so we get talking. He's like, "Hey, when you're ready to jump ship, uh, just let me know. We'll rebrand if we have to. We'll do something. But I'd love to have you because I don't have some of your." background with me in the entertainment industry and so sure enough as the as the campaign ends and i go through that last year or so i'm just like i'm ready to make a change and uh it was a scary change uh where you're kind of like well, if i don't succeed here like what people would be like why'd you leave the secret service like right what are you, are you an idiot like god cleese would did this and so you're just like whatever <laughs> and I do that. I've been there ever since. And uh, I travel the world now with bands and do high profile events and stuff. And it's a job too that has afforded me uh, the chance to travel to places like Guadalajara and Juarez and some really sketchy places in right. uh, South Africa and stuff where you never would go unless you had the opportunity with your job and stuff. So, yeah, I've, it's uh, every time I talk about that, it seems like I'm older than I am, but at 37 right now, um, I'm very fortunate to have the training experience I've had. It's one of those things too, where it's you still, I still have to do the firearm safety to carry my G cards in certain states. Sure. Uh, and but you still have to practice driving or rules and laws change. I mean, I think the last two years I've read more about the Constitution in terms of Second Amendment rights and home invasion and protesting, like all this stuff. And it's like for my job, I'm always learning. And so I still love what I do. It's fun. It's a passion for mine. And um, the the day and minute I start feeling like I did while I was in Secret Service, that's when I might be like, well, maybe I'll just stay at home because I can't stay at home and just micromanage. I love being in the field because I get to meet people like you guys who have other awesome jobs and careers. And it's like for me, that kind of gets me – that's my motivation, right? And so – I uh yeah I love it in 2023 it might be the biggest year yet so love it, it. it's it's looking to be crazy man and I mean all that background uh, knowledge and travel you did with Secret Service puts you at such a tier one category for executive protection on any level right you know, then to get into the rock and roll world that's a different type of client right that's a different type of uh, a whole another type of chaos which we talked about in a previous show that you and I were on on just. and being to several shinedown shows with you now and seeing what goes into something like that. I'm overwhelmed with what you have to have your eyes on as you know, your head on a swivel eyes in the back of your head because you're have such a massive perimeter and so many potential threats to cover. And you don't have the support we had on say a spec ops team, no, like the cartels. So I'm looking at your site work up before the show with you and just going, Oh man, so, so many things have to fall into place. And if one thing goes wrong and the domino effect starts, you got to be quick. And so that must've been quite a challenge to be, I'm not going to say undermanned or undergunned, but equipped a different way to deal with a different type of environment. Talk a little bit about that and where those challenges led and how you've mastered it. It was one of those things. I actually just talked with uh, Dr. Jason Piccolo about this uh, for his new book project. And he he actually kind of asked me something similar, a little bit different than yours, but like, how do you go from your badge and gun to, I need this, a hundred agency step up and want to help you, right? right. For this, the preparation is six, three to four months out before any show, 
I've already direct with not only the the building GM or the owner if it's not like a owned like by like Lab Nation or AEG per se, but if they own it or a part of it, they're part of the process too. Where I have this eight to twelve page advance uh, PDF packet I send them that it, it contains everything I need to be a successful show, anything stage, backstage, actual security. But now I've added uh, active shooter stuff. If there's a bomb threat, this is what we're going to do. Let's talk about evacuation routes. And so three to four months out, you're talking about this. I've been through some of these venues a hundred times each where unless there's a high level changeover, this, it's always the same call. Hey, John, we haven't changed this. This is what we do here. Hey, we added this or, hey, there's a we have a new bunker in place now. Uh, which happens a lot in the Midwest with like the Tornado Alley area, right? So they'll, they'll always kind of change up some of those routes if the buildings change or uh, certain areas they used to bring us to. The wind is too strong now, so they had to build something different. So we're always kind of dealing with logistics like that. Um, and so that three to four months out, you're doing all that, and then when you get like a week out, you kit them back with. And I'm always direct with them. Hey, the last three shows we've had this number of evictions or fights or drunken. Uh, whatever we've had this many medicals based on heat and you kind of build this kind of based on the trajectory this is what we should look out for and so you kind of help them with ems stuff or issues you might have late night at merch or hey maybe we should mm-hmm. uh, shut the beer and liquors down early or keep it going later because there's no issues and so that all builds into it the day of show you walk the routes with the supervisor of the day and you just kind of go over the show flow. You have a, a meeting around 3 to 4 p.m. and catering every night with all the department heads, uh, all the people from marketing to the building owner to security to uh, like the usher supervisors. And you all get the same page where I, I basically go over the spiel again of what we anticipate, go over how we're go- people are coming through doors, what law enforcement's on site, how was the bomb the bomb sweep, was there any issues there, uh, how many undercover cops do I have, Stuff like that. Hey, if and so a lot of the stuff is just like, hey, how long do we keep the EMS here? Well, we should load out till 2 a.m. Let's keep the EMS here, especially if the hotel or the hospital is less than or more than five miles away. Right. I need to make sure it happens. I've had people die in the loading dock and load ins. I've had people severely cut in the arteries, just loading out. And so it's like this when the show ends, it's two hours of your time. The issue doesn't end. The perimeter is still an issue. People can still sneak back in and people can still get hurt with the gear being loaded or loading out. And so it's you're looking at an 18 hour day. And that's just me. Now, I'm not saying I'm high alert at the ready for if the band wakes up at 10 or 12, I'm, I'm still up. But I'm not actively like, oh, sure. we got a we got snipers. Oh, no, let's not. You just don't have right. the resources for that. Right. Yeah. Um, and the only time really that I feel like I need to up that is if I'm running like the these I do these Blue Angels air shows. And that's when obviously the military is involved, these other agencies where it's like obviously flyovers, all that stuff you have to deal with. But when you go to like some of these countries, whether it's South Africa or South America, uh, even Denmark, and sometimes even Paris, those areas where they were dealing with the migration issues in terms of all that stuff back like two years before the pandemic. I remember Paris, uh, we leave the hotel. Paris was all the yellow vests were striking and throwing flares and rocks at the government for all this crazy like workplace stuff. And our route had to change on the fly. So we're direct with law enforcement. Hey, we have to get from here to here. And so all that stuff you have to wear. As the world changes and stuff's happening during the day and 
weekly, like you have to be aware of that. It could put a, a change or put a damper in what you already have planned. And the people f- like me that aren't ready to do that prep work, the advanced work, like we talked about before, so the show started, the podcast stuff, it's like all the prep work you do before you actually do it, that's where the money is. That's where your your time and energy should be going to because if you do it the right way, there should be no issues. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, kind of little tip of the iceberg, right. That's above water yes. is, is the show we're recording and it's 90% of that Goliath, you know, yes. uh, polar cap there. And, and I completely agree with you and having worked up a lot of similar missions. I mean, even on met, we had things where Obama flew in, we had the Israeli president come into the Bay area and now game wardens, my team was out on levees and we were, you know, doing all kinds of crazy. And it was months of prep working with secret service um, just to make that five minutes go smoothly. Right. Right. Um, five minutes. But I'm going to take you back to a recent show um, that you had to post on this last year on the Planet Zero tour with our brothers from Shinedown. And the charismatic front man, uh, Brent Smith, is out in the crowd breaking up a fight, trying to de-escalate a fight, surrounded by that hyped up, super energetic group yeah. fans at, at Shinedown's blockbuster show which was amazing and the look on your face was priceless because i could sense what you were thinking is you're next to him watching that with all those people take us through that man that was a oh crap moment and what was going through your mind so that show was at drake's uh new club in toronto uh which if you follow politics you know canada was i mean they're still about six months behind this whole COVID thing but that's a whole other story right so our show has been rescheduled twice the venues change and so we finally get up there it's already a sold out show these people haven't been waiting for the show for two years now it's already amped up people have been drinking early they were hot oh it was the 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 temperature in that room i don't mean the actual the temperature was disgustingly sweaty but it people were it was people were on edge not a bad edge right but when that starts happening and this actually happened uh, with Wade in Guilford, New Hampshire, where we had to stop the show twice with domestics in the front row, people fighting. And I'm jumping in there, breaking up, men and women punching each other. True love, right? Right, Wade? Yeah, for sure. uh, and so uh, yeah, there was actually hot, it was actually, hot in the Northeast, right? I, I guess it was actually Wade right, down right, there. Right front and center. It was, it was pretty awesome. Wade was down there fighting a local game board. And it, was, it was interesting. <laughs> uh, and so – when that happens, and these guys do stop the show a lot when that does happen, very rarely do we go with the crowd. But it was one of those things where I don't know if he – I can always tell when he's about to do something that he normally doesn't do. And so he shot me a look before he started talking. And I'm like, all right, I got to get in there because we're about to jump in. And so I come off the front with him, and we get in there. And I'm never worried – uh, per se, of someone swinging on me. And we've done that where it's planned for the song Enemies. We've done that Download Festival or Rock Am Park in Germany. We're talking eighty to 120,000 fans. He yeah. splits down the middle. We're walking in there. There's only been a couple of times. I know Greenfield Festival, some guy was trying to get too close. I had to kind of tactically and uh, move him out of the way, which was an issue. He's just ignorant, right? Um, but with that situation... You see the guy swing at this one guy, and you see him swing at this guy's son. And then as we jump in there, and this guy's still swinging at security, it's one of those things where I'm like, you're trying, you're, you can't let your guy, Brent in this case, get too close. But I also know the power he has where people respect him. It's a weird thing to describe. Yeah. A lot of other singers I deal with in that situation, I pull the back because I don't. Not that I don't trust them to do what they, they what obviously is a good thing. I just don't 
know if the crowd respects them in the way that they do in these situations. And so nothing happens there and we're, we're getting back and it's like, you, you never know. Cause your first thought, I'm always trailing him when we do that because I, it's easier for me to see what's coming at us. And if someone wants to hit me from behind, they're going to whatever shake me like, so be it. At least I can, no. I, they're hitting me first. Right. Um, it, a funny story actually there. We did this show in, uh, I think Rome or Milan, Italy. And we're going through the crowd. It was a very pro-woman crowd, like a lot more women. Like these women were just vicious in a good way. But we're going through the crowd, and I swear, like a woman like ripped the back of my shirt and like started scratching me. And like I had like cuts on me after the show. And we're just like, <laughs> man, John, these women here. And so stuff like that will happen all the time. But with that in that specific thing, it was you're kind of like, man, like you're you're amped up because now everyone's got their phone out now. Right. And you and like you guys, when you're doing your job, you always have to do your job, even if no one's looking, right? But with this magnitude, in the back of my mind, I go, this thing's is gonna go on TMZ or because no artist is doing this, especially in the pandemic era. Right. And <laughs> sure. back we even doing the shows, whatever. And so we're the doing that. I'm like thinking, well, if this guy swings here or comes at us this way or someone bumps at him, I gotta get him around. I, I'm looking like what's we're down the middle of this feet, this little, this 4,000 cap club. Well, this door is closer here. If we have to burn out here, I know security is coming over here in the back of my mind. Oh, wow. What if someone pours a beer on my guy or throws something at me or this guy comes at my guy because it's him. And the guy was drunk. He was drugged down. He got, as he's getting pulled out, he's punching more men and women. There are six people backstage after that song getting treated by EMS from punch punches and stuff. And, Wow. Law enforcement, they shot me awake, basically say, hey, we'll we'll handle this from here. And I'm sure it was handled. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just – this happened a bunch where it's like, man, you, you go out there, you trust your guy. You're always on the same page. Yeah. Even when you know – like he knows – if even if he doesn't see me and he has an inkling to jump in there, he knows I'm going to be there. And I think there's a trust level there too. Well, you guys would know working with your teams where it's like yeah. you might not see the guy or – you might not, you know, who has your six, whatever, but you know they're there. Oh, for sure. And let, let, let's talk about you and the Shinedown team for a minute because there's something special there. You've, you know, protected a lot, done security for Nickelback, Motley Crue, a ton of other bands. I mean, you guys are kind of the go-to guys. And knowing Chris as well on your side of the fence, how good you guys do that. But this relationship with Shinedown, I feel, is almost like a Met relationship I have with my teammates, man. You guys are family. You guys are friends. And it's just amazing because you're so like-minded and there is that you don't even have to say a word. Sometimes you don't even have to look at each other. And obviously Brent has that trust. And I noticed that from the first show when you guys started the tour last year in San Francisco, there at the Warfield. Um, and Brent and I actually had talks about security on the sidebars, you know, of all the challenges to go on that, but knowing when to jump in and when to jump out or just let things happen. And he has such a respect and a compelling way of deescalating a fight before it gets out of control where you don't even have to walk out into the crowd. And it's, it's interesting because obviously he's been in the industry for 20 plus years at this high level. But when I see people with my, whether it's law enforcement or military or bouncer type people, the the power of using your voice to de-escalate is so much easier than throwing a punch. A lot of people that fail in my industry are the ones that talk shit. I don't know if I can swear it here. They can talk back to people yeah. or throw a punch. All these people that react that way, you're not going to be successful in life. Whether you're a teacher or you can't get mad if 
you're some famous doctor on TV and someone's asking a question to you about why is this working, this doesn't, your first reaction should be to condemn this person. And I think as a society, we don't allow we we it's just weird. Like so if I if when he does that, that respect is such a cool thing because they respect him and whatever. I've had situations where a woman is saying, oh, this guy's doing this, or you see a person crying in the crowd or a, a person that's a loader, and you approach them, and they just have maybe they're having a bad day. Their family member was supposed to be at the show with them, and they passed away a couple months ago, and they're here alone. And But when you some people walk by those people, or the first thought when security sees some of the people fighting, and this happened a couple times, where I go, I see it, I get out there, I talk to them, we pull them aside the backstage, or outside where it's quiet you talk to them it's like they're not assholes they're not malicious trying to fight each other they're mad because this maybe there was an issue at home where their kid's sick and they're stressed out and it looks like they're fighting but what if they're just talking and so you'll see security kick people out or get out of here you're not but if you don't talk to people and understand them or be accepting and willing to learn about other people before you react it's going to save your life especially in my industry where it's so many people fail. It's like you see all these military guys or cop guys or former executive protection guys, oh, all this stuff. Man, you could have last two hours at one of the shows I'm at because you don't know. You go to these festivals. There's so many type A, type B, type C, yeah. personalities, issues, egos. How do you read the room and do what you're trained to do and be successful? It's like sometimes it's, it's, it's unfortunate really, but Brent is – He's awesome with that. And it's it's a luxury to work with someone like that that understands that. That obviously never puts your life in danger either. All the bands I've worked with, yeah. artists and celebrities, not one of them has ever done something where it's like they're looking to be on TMZ. They're not putting right, themselves yeah, – right. they're, not, they're not, hey, let's drive down this road or let's go to this club at 4 a.m. in the shitty part of Chicago. Like we're not, we're not doing that, right? And so, again, that's a luxury there. But so many times people don't know how to read the room. And uh, whether you're a singer or law enforcement or whatever, you you have to do what you do, what you're paid to do, but also do it in a way that it's just I don't know. It's just it's just a weird. Every time I do a show after when I walk around the the floor after a show, I'm just like, it's like amazed at like the chaos that's in here, but then it just goes away. And the people that aren't able to read or assess that chaos in real time, they they struggle with it. Yeah, I think, you know, the parallels between what a game warden without backup has to do and what you and the bandmates have to do completely overwhelmed with massive amounts of people, it's command presence. And you and Brent have that. I've seen that in action at the shows. And it's interesting because Wayne and I just did a a virtual class on de-escalation to rangers and wardens from all over the world, the African guys, people down in South America, America, whatever. And it really gets down to your best tool is your mouth and your mind and de-escalating and empathizing and getting in and just cutting that, cutting that tension immediately. So you, you know, you've almost lost a battle if you have to go to fisticuffs and start using tools when you're outnumbered. Oh, you've already lost. In your guy's case, 20,000 to one and mine, maybe, you know, 10 to one or whatever, but, but yeah, it's really neat to see that. Um, And especially for a band that's putting out so much positive energy 
on unity and not divisiveness, but people are hot, you know, like you said, John, they're tense. They're coming out of COVID going to shows for the first time. People are dealing with depression, you know, drug and alcohol uh, abuse is, is unprecedented right now as a, as you know, through that process. So it's really neat to see how you guys work that firsthand from behind the scenes. And I know that was a treat for Wayne and I both doing what we do in a, in a different way. For sure. You, you talk about command presence. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't really realize. Obviously you guys know it with your uniform and, doing this stuff, whether you're speaking or actually actively working. But for me, a lot of times people are like, I'm the only one in my industry that wears a sports coat when I'm actively working. They're like no one else does it. I and not to dock, not to dock the other people, but you aren't I respect my craft, my training, my experiences so much that I this is gonna come off as me as this isn't me a holier than thou moment, but my advice to people in the security field Stop just wearing the black pants, the black shirt, uh, stupid camp, like stupid baseball caps, stupid graphic right. band t-shirts. Respect the craft and the industry you're in because for two years it wasn't around. Right. And I still see some people have changed, but you still see people posting, oh, I'm tour security for who and so and so. I was like, dude, you look like you're working Buckeyes. And not right. to knock those people, <laughs> but you're responsible for a multi-billion dollar entity that is supplying all this stuff around the world and you're dressed like a clown. And so when I put the jacket on and I walk that front row or around the floor, people know who I am right. without me even they, without them even knowing who I am because no one else is wearing a sports jacket. And if you put out the presence of he's got a sports jacket and he's he's his beard's trimmed up or he's he's stoic, even if by the if you hold yourself, you stand upright and your shoulders out, and you just anytime I walk in a room backstage at a festival. I will purposely go into catering, especially these big festivals where a lot of these people just whatever, whatever. And so <laughs> I'll purposely walk in catering in my sports coat and just do a lap. I know I'm, I'm not eating. I don't have time to eat. I'm going to grab an energy drink or a soda or a coffee or tea, and I'll walk around that place and just make eyes with people that I know are just shitheads. And yeah. I'll I let people know the big dogs here. And I think that's not ego. That's – I'm very confident what I do, but I want people to know I represent a band or a bands. If 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 you see me acting stupid or dumb, it projects on the band that these guys only hire idiots. Like it's like you guys. If you guys had a game warden, some rookie coming in to train and off duty, he's doing shit, he's getting locked up or fighting. Right. He's probably not working with it. He's probably losing his gun badge, but it's a reflection of you guys as your organizations. And it's like even if you have a family and you're always the troublemaker, it's like you're reflecting poorly on your family or your sports franchise or whatever you are a part of. We're all part of different groups, whether it's a one-person group or a 10-person group. Have some self-respect and appreciate what you do. You're at this high level. Why not respect yourself enough to at least look the part? And so, yeah, it's, I, it's one of those things that people laugh, especially my crew guys and people that know me. They know why I do it. And again, like you said, it's – the command presence. Did you There's get some... that from the Secret Service, though, John? I mean, we always have this conversation because of the the tactical uniforms that we're wearing in the field compared to the professional, and then the in between where it falls, and that command presence is so important. And you just hit the nail on the head on all those elements. Yeah, I don't. I yeah. think there is there's something about the upkeep and presentation of how you look. Uh, but for me, with how I'm always running around. Uh, when, you, when I see a sports jacket, my first thought is, is, say I'm in a grocery store or somewhere outside of my my work zone, my first thought is, well, that's a leader right there. And that yeah. person could be a bag boy 
or a girl or a waiter or whatever, I'm like, oh, th- th- this guy, if I need help, I'm going to go to this guy because he's got the answers. And, I, and for me, it's like I don't have time to say hello or especially if I jump down a barricade or I see some usher doing some stupid dance up on the level 200 floor, not doing his job. Right. I get up there and they see me coming down the hallway with my flashlight. They already know they, they messed up. Like the, right. the assumption is there's a guy with a sports jacket. It helps me control the crowd a lot easier too because if I'm breaking up a fight or asking something or if they need me, they already snap too and like, well, I can't be a dick to this guy. I'm going to put my beer down or I'm not going to start screaming this guy like I would like a baby of local security guys wearing a, that says security on the back. It's a weird uh, – it helps me control and it's a power move in the sense where it helps me do my job. Where if I you don't know who I am, if I tell you, hey, you might want to move this truck here if we have to park an ambulance, or hey, if if this cop's coming out here, I need him to have this access key to this hallway, like stuff like that. Where it's like they don't, you, they just do it. Whereas if I just look like I grab a t-shirt, a pair of shorts on, some Crocs, they'd be like, get the hell out of here, dude. Who are you? And so yeah, it's, yeah. it's a little bit of everything. My my parents teach me self respect. Uh, my CEO Chris be. Hold yourself accountable. You represent the brand. It's little stuff like that where it's like, I just have such a pride uh, in what I do. And it's like people are like, well, it's just rock and roll. It's like, well, it, it's more it than that. It goes beyond that. It's it's more than that. And it goes above the music. It goes, it's a sense of pride. Like I never got the people that even when I have to run to the grocery store, I could easily, I mean, hell, my grocery store here, I could go in shirtless if I wanted. And they're not going to say anything. But I always, I'm never wearing sandals out public. I'm going to wear shoes. What if there's a uh, glass break or I I can't get cut up? Like I'm always in the back of my head thinking all this stuff where it's like, let me bring this. Let me bring wear this. Let me look, I'm not going to go out there if I don't brush my teeth or I look unkempt. It's all about presentation. If you look good and feel good, the, the optics of that is this person has their shit together. And I think people lose sight of that, especially in the last two years where everyone Zooms at home now. Yeah. Uh, you see some of these animals in public. It's like, dude, do you have any self-respect? They're in pajamas. <laughs> right. I can taste your fingernails from here. It's yeah. like, dude, what are you doing? And I think it's – if there's one thing um, I preach on my podcast and stuff, it's like just put the effort in to be the best version of yourself. And I think that it might inspire someone to do the same thing. And I know you guys are always holding yourself accountable. I've never seen any one of you in public not ready if something were to break bad or you never look like you don't belong. Like you always look you some of the probably some of the best dressed people I've had backstage. And it's like you look you look the part, right? Some people that come back there are just uh, whatever. Uh, just like, okay. Yeah. I'll call you an Uber, get the hell out of here. But so I'm just like People that respect that, I, I, there's something to that. Yeah, and you've been generous enough. You've seen my little, you know, bug out bag and all prep and like, oh yeah, I got you covered. Go, do, don't leave it in the car. It's not safe out there. Secure it. No, and that's all. That's all really awesome. And what I was really blown away with when you got into that sport jacket at that first show, I saw you guys together in San Francisco last year. I had never seen that at a show. And I've been to a lot of shows as a rock and roll guy in a band myself. You know that. And I've never seen a leader of a security team at a rush show, you know, at a journey concert, whatever I saw over the, all those years dressed like you were. And I went, all right, man, he's getting into uniform tonight. When you put it on after the, you know, the roaming around we did and you're holding your house down at the highest level. And that's so cool to see. And I guarantee that is de-escalating so many things. A hundred percent, hundred percent before the show even starts, you know, just by having that command presence to look professional and it, and it pops, but it, it's rare to see that. And 
I didn't realize till you mentioned that how much you're not seeing that in your industry, but pushing that. And kudos to you for doing it. it, it it'd be good to see in other shows with other teams. Yeah, like even our crew guys, like when it's the hour out, usually the hour out before we hit the deck or walk the stage, that's where I put it on. It's part of my, okay, now we got to get ready. Like I'm going to get my waters pre-staged. Yeah. All the stuff I need for the show, my little can of soda here, like everything I need, make sure my flashlight's charged, all this stuff, it's my preparation. So I have to get mentally prepared for it. But all the crew guys, uh, the Fortune of the Shinedown crew, they all have their own thing. They all look clean. They're sharp. They're yeah. ready to go. And it's just like, you see some of these camps, and I'm not in those camps. So I don't. I shouldn't really care per se, but they're just not ready to go, right? Like you have to get ready to go to war, yeah. not like a physical war. But if you're if you're going to church or you're going to fight the cartels on the border or you're doing this crazy stuff, and it's like you have to be ready, be prepared to do your thing. And it's like sometimes people, I think people don't know how to look for that or. They think they look the part, but man, we we own it to ourselves every day when we wake up and make our bed. And there's still people that don't make their beds. And it's like for me, I make that bed. It's like I'm so structured that way and raised that way, where it's like if I don't make my bed, I do I make my bus bunk. Like yeah. our bunks on bus. It's like little things like I make my hotel room beds. How sick yeah. is that? Like, yeah. is, I, but part of me is just like it's my well, upbringing where I'm like, man, I this so it's just. To get mentally prepared for something, it's so vital, whether you're an author, a doctor, a stay-at-home mom, whatever you are, <laughs> be prepared each day to go to war, and I think you'll be better off for it. You're, well, you're right, man, and you're you're not the only weirdo to make a hotel bed and make that bed every morning. I do the same thing. And like I'm, if I shave in a sink yeah. in a hotel, yeah. I'm cleaning that sink out. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm doing like this. I look at my mirror. I go, dude, I what am I doing? But then I'm like, you know what? I respect the people that are doing their jobs after me. Why create more work for them, right? Yeah, and some people call it OCD. I think you hit it on the head. It's just better prepared with more pride in what you do, you know? And yeah. uh, Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson did a big post on this a couple of weeks ago where he said, did you make your bed this morning? And it's great you mentioned this analogy. And it's like, because if you get nothing else accomplished or have the crappiest day of your life, you started off your day with one task accomplished at 100% and you're confident moving forward. And when I think of that, and that's a, it, it brings up your podcast, what Spear Talk podcast stands for and what message you bring to your listeners. And let's go into that a little bit, because really it came out of COVID just like Wayne and I did with Thin Green Line and Keeping Warden's Watch going and just trying to bring some hope and levity and information to survival and preparedness and uh, self-reliance, all the things you and I have talked about, all the things we've talked about with our Shinedown brothers who are very like-minded on that. But you have such a positive message to the podcast. Talk about it and what what started it all and what have you seen it become and what are you seeing with all of us that are fans? So... I started that because obviously as my industry shut down, I was going to lose the social interaction with people, which is why I love being in the field, talking to people like you guys, whether they're game wards. And a lot of my friends that come out to shows, you're high level military, law enforcement, firefighters, smoke jumpers, all these crazy yeah. three, three, four letter agency people that I love talking to and just shoot the shit with. Right. And I, I felt like I was going to lose that side of it. It was also a point where I'm like, there's only so much working out you can do in a day for these two right. years. Uh, and so I, I've always enjoyed reading. I remember reading like the Indian, the cupboards book series as a kid. I've always loved Stephen King and a lot of the fantasy stuff, right? Yes. Oh, yes. last weekend for me. I mean, I don't even, that, 
if I could get a full body tattoo of just everything from Last of the Weekends, I would. Yeah. And so you read these books. Five movie boys. No, dude. That's a whole other podcast. When I saw your um, handle, man, that would that just opened my eyes hugely to who you were. You know. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. until Instagram censored me because I posted a picture of me with a firearm. Uh, but yeah. so <laughs> I, I've I also wanted to get back into reading, but I was like, I don't know, I don't know if I, what book. I'm, I'm not going to walk into a Barnes and Noble and just. Go to a bookshelf and be like, "Oh, here's the new Jack Carr, or here's the new uh, Alice Cross book." Or like, I, I'm not that person, right? So I figured, well, I'm gonna start a podcast or a series where every a different guest is gonna force me to read up on that subject matter, whether it's martial arts or conservation or domestic violence, uh, mental health. Uh, and so I, I went down this rabbit hole where it's like, uh, John, you were guest number two or three. I think you were guest. No, you're guest two. And um, I had to read Hidden War. Like I, cause I obviously I'm putting my head, I'm putting together a guest list. I'm like, well, fuck, what do I just watch with the Shinedown guys on the bus that me and the guys were like, holy shit, this guy's cool. It was the, the uh, Joe Rogan show. You the episode you did, we saw. I'm like, well, I'll reach out to him. And then I started thinking, well, I want to learn about human trafficking because it's really big right now with Epstein. I reached out to Dr. Lewis Lee, yeah. uh, who started Children of the Night, incredible organization to help rescuing these kids from prostitution. Then I'm like, well, domestic violence, and I on ESPN, and I shit you not, the the twenty whatever anniversary of the Christy Martin Salters, the famous boxer, yeah. her domestic violence uh, attack where she almost died and survived. It was the anniversary. I I literally messaged her that day when I read the article. ESPN, I go, hey, she said yes. And so my first three people were right there, three vastly different topics. But now I got to start researching this stuff because I don't want to come off as I just read the article or I read some, watched some of the show. I'm just asking questions based on that. Right. But then after those start doing, I start doing martial arts stuff and MMA and then all this cool stuff. And I'm like, this is so much fun learning and getting engaged in a topic. And so for me, from there, it goes into survivalists and like those people from like the reality TV shows or organic living because now with COVID everything going on like who are these people that only eat like mushrooms and sustainability or this green type living where it's like they're healthy because they're not in pharmaceuticals and you go down all these crazy rabbit holes of different topics I've always been engaged in and here I am reading books autobiographies from actors uh from military guys and this I have a stack of books now where I'm still going through where it's like I've always loved these men and women that they're smoke jumpers or these people that the helicopter and jump into forest fires. It's like, I think my life is crazy. It's like, dude, you are on a whole other level. And I want to learn about that. <laughs> and you, every time you see someone like a David Gogan's talk um, or Yako Wilnick or those type of people, they're telling their stories and you, you find all these different traits, whether it's motivation or leadership and leadership covers every industry. Right. And so right. I just found that for me, this is such a fun way to not only keep reading and staying engaged mentally, uh, but talking to people that maybe maybe one week you don't get conservation, but next week you're going to get this one because you're a former military person and now you're dealing with mental health or PTSD issues. And this guest connects with you there. But what I've noticed as each week it grows, different people that come in, it's like so when your episode, you're the last episode of last year, um, I've had more messages of people saying, Man, I had no idea I would have loved conservation. And they're like, well, John's been on two other times. Or I've had other conservationists on here. Um, and they're like, oh, I had no idea. Like this, I'm just finding this stuff. And so 
this it is this family it creates with people that are I now if I want to go to Spirit Talk, there's seven guests that have actively in whether it's game wardens or uh fighting the Mexican cartels uh with or the African cartels with ivory tusks and stuff. So it's like all these people, it just allowed me to open up the eyes and ears to people who might not maybe understand a certain topic or whatever it is. And now they're like, we can't wait for every week because you have a different guest on that's so vastly different from the previous one. But when you look back at the total, and right now I've recorded, I'm up, I'm at 140 right now. It's so, um, <laughs> and so I do that, but I look back, it's like, well, now I got 10 episodes of conservation. I got 12 of martial arts and whatever. I got leadership. I got writing. I got mental health. And so you could kind of build like this cool thing where it's like, you just check it out. And I've, I love that people are receptive to it. I wouldn't do it if I didn't love it, obviously, because it does take a lot of work that we discussed. Sure. But I have found it's therapeutic for me because it breaks up the monotony of my day to day of my actual job, whether I'm on the road or micromanaging people on the road, it allows me to kind of step away and be that curious soul again, where I get to ask these questions of my favorite actors. Like when I had William Sanderson on, yeah. incredible actor, and I'm looking, at the, I'm talking to him after, and he's like, I don't do these a lot, but I loved your approach. I'm talking to him about his military career. Here's a guy that's a prolific actor in Deadwood and all these crazy shows and uh, Lonesome Dove and all this. And I'm like, he gets to talk for an hour with me about his military career, which no one talks to him about because right. I'm always fascinated by – that's kind of the thing I gravitate towards. Yes, I know this actor. I know this author. But what makes this person tick? Like tell me about your childhood or issues you had. And I think right. that's what people gravitate towards because it's not the same old conversation. Like yep. you guys could have a game board on here and talk about, oh, the P-double of the streams or right. uh, like, right. oh, I found – like you guys know those answers – but what you do, you'd get me to talk about stuff today that I never talk about my own. Mm. So that's the power of a good podcast. And yeah, it's like and, when we had Colonel Oliver North, John, uh, we talked about his dog, and that uh, extended yeah, our uh, podcast yeah. immensely. Yeah. Right, that's something near and dear to his heart, and you know, canines are near and dear to our hearts as well. So that was that's a perfect. Well, one. I know Barry Kirch. He all the press he gets to do is music related. So the fact he was on mm. your thing for two episodes. He, him, and I, people had no idea where to go to shows. Man, I know you're into fly fishing, or I didn't know you're into hunting, or making your own deer jerky, or you know how to gut a fish, or you are whatever. It's like you help clean up the oceans. It's like it, it just it, it gives an opportunity to people to talk about something that they normally don't talk about. I think it's refreshing for guests too. You know, John, and, and it really is, and it brings in, it shows that there's so much more love for wildlife and conservation as a whole out there in industries that don't necessarily are known for it. I mean, until I met you, I didn't know Barry and Eric and Zach and even Brent, you know, have a certain level. Everybody has a love for wildlife in that band, but yeah. people are actively out there being conservationists. Barry's hunting and fishing with his kids, Zach's fishing, Eric's doing his thing. And our listeners for, and Wayne, you, you know, you're going to second me on this, but Barry's conversation like with you today went so well and covered so many good things. People were like, we had no idea. That was such a great episode, man. We love him as a drummer. We love the band, but he's out there hunting and you guys are talking survival and preparedness. And, and that's the beautiful part about all these podcast platforms is 
people are actually listening. They're not watching much on TV. You know, they're not really reading books or listening to audible books and they're picking up things that we really want to get out there that people just don't know about. And so kudos to you. And, you know, I'm um, selfishly on my end for the hidden more issue that, you know, um, is so important out there and it's underrepresented. And, and we got to give a big shout out to brother Joe Rogan because none of this is happening today. I wouldn't have met you had you not. It's crazy out. how that works, right? Yeah. How you hear something or read something. Mm-hmm. It's like what yeah. leads to, and I'm a big believer in uh, the idea of when you meet someone, you meet them for a reason. You might right. not know it at the time. They might not become a good friend. They might become a mortal enemy, right? But you're meeting them at that moment. And what comes from that moment is what I think is so interesting to me. Because, like, if we weren't, God, we were, I think we were, we were in Austria on a bus yeah, on Wi Fi watching old episodes of Joe Rogan and the John Doerr stuff. And it's like, I really, at that moment, I knew Barry uh, was very, he looks like some of the, hunts and fishes right yeah. but eric like in that moment like we all realized because that's why i first kind of started out with a band in 2017 ish or so that holy shit these guys are actually into like eric could take me into his property now and tell you every fish species every plant because he knows and he researches what berries don't put the dogs over there because that stuff's poisonous that's soup like everyone is into that type of stuff like brent Loves elephants. He loves uh, one of those. We always send each other memes and reels and that stuff. But uh, one of those little furry. Uh, they look like he- like hedgehogs, but they're kind of bushier. Uh, chuparas, no chuparas, <laughs> kabara, whatever they're called. They're always on. They look like this big, like prickly uh, pig thing. But we're always sending each other stuff. Animals like he's like, I want this for the bus. Or hey, we're in a day off at some near some famous zoo. We're going yeah. to check out the animals. So cool. And it's yeah. little things like that where it's like it's cool that people. I mean, our first thought is, God, we got to break these animals out and let them run free, right? <laughs> but you still go in there and respect animal life and wildlife. It's just, it's surreal to me, man. I, it's like when Barry and I, we we do a lot of fishing and stuff and fly fishing and all that, and the moments are quiet. The the, the quiet moments we have. They're so loud in my head. I don't know if that makes sense because I have so much joy. We both have so much joy sitting in silence or fishing in silence. But we're like, we have so much energy and passion inside us. The minute one of us catches a fish, it's like this eruption, like this firework display where it's like, oh my God, you caught a puffer or you hooked a deal. Or it's like, you just, just, I just love that about wildlife where it's like, you just, the other day I'm I'm winterizing the yard. I'm going to the yard. I'm like, holy shit, I had no idea I had wild blueberries back here. And I, I have, I'm not well enough yet to trust my instinct to not eat that berry, but I'm like gun to my head. If I had to, I think there's a blueberry. So I have that app where you can kind of put a plant leaf on it. It tells you, I think it's plantive, whatever it's called. Yeah. And sure enough, it's a wild blueberry. I asked my uncle who's big into this and yeah, it's wild blueberry, but I'm like, man, I had no idea. And so I'm like, I'm just, I was happy that day because now if God forbid, I can't get to the store and my blue blueberry <laughs> bushes are garbage. I know where some plants are if I have to eat them. Well, yeah, and we we shared this recently, and I did with Barry as well between our hunting and, and fishing stuff going on on the break Shinedown finally had. And he was like, I'm finally going to get out next week and just hunt and be quiet and not have cell coverage. Good luck. And, you know, we all need those moments, and you guys need those moments probably more than anybody because – we're all in the public eye, but I don't know anyone that's more intensely in a public eye and constantly getting that pressure from people all the time than on a you know rock band to the level of say shine down. And you guys are on the road so much. Um, those nature moments are so bonding. And 
I know Wayne and I have talked about this and you and I have talked a little bit about this on your last podcast that I was on of, I don't think you get more unity and less guardedness than two people sitting on the edge of a Creek fly fishing or sitting in a deer stand, right? Wayne, just whispering, whether you're from totally different political sides, you're completely, you know, polarized on your values, your lifestyle, your upbringing, but now you're really listening undefensively. You're really sharing stuff unguardedly and the world just needs more of that. And it's, it's those moments in those deer stands. It's funny because uh, I just got back from New York with my family and they just finished up hunting season up there, but the farmers up there are very conservative, but there's obviously a couple, a couple of cousins that are not, I'm going to say left leaning, but they, they're not as conservative. Right. But when they get in those deer stands, it's not a, you get to understand people at a different level. Like the pre the preconceived notion of oh, if you're left or you're right, you're not going to get along. That's right. far from the truth. Far from the those truth. moments where you're fishing or in a deer stand or you're trying to. I remember as a younger kid walking with my uncles and the friends up there and helping pushing the deer out into the field for the hunters that are out there, like walking the fence line, the wood lines and stuff, and. Those stories and stuff, a lot of which you can't repeat, obviously, but like those moments in time where you learn about someone and get to appreciate who they are as a human, that's the best part of the conservation for me. Absolutely. And it's like, I, I think people, never, they, if you could spend time, and I, I, I wonder why this show has never been created, where if you put someone in a deer stand, let the polar opposite of where that person is next to you, within a couple of days of that person, even at the end of the day, they're going to become lifelong friends. But I think those moments they share with each other over their love of one central object is it's just a game changer, man. It is absolutely no. And we, we just, we're promoting more of that. Just yep. get out in nature and breathe some fresh air. Yeah. I, I had a question for you guys, actually. Throw it now, out. Now that I think about it, I know when I'm off duty, not working, I've always been geared towards be a good witness, see something, say something, call law enforcement, whatever it is. But if I have to react to something, whether it's a medical or help control the situation, I want to do it. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I read the room and be like, hey, maybe I don't want to whatever, especially sometimes on airplanes where, hey, I know there's a whatever on here. Let him deal with it. I don't want to get in the way of that. When you guys are retired or not do your thing, how inclined are you to be reactive to a situation? Say you're hiking somewhere and you come across ammo casings that – this is AR-15. This is a AK-47. Or there's a weird mass grave of animals, or you see a clear pollution. How hard is it for you to walk away from that situation knowing, man, I don't know if I did enough? Or I made the call, but am I doing enough, even in my time of enjoyment, to stop this from happening again? Well, I want to jump on that real quick, and I know Wayne's got an example, but I, since I've retired and move permanently up to Northwest Montana, I cannot tell you how many poaching, cut gates, spotlighting, um, people in closed areas for fishing that I've seen. And it's because I go into these remote areas, I'm usually alone. And brother, it, I, I can't get away from it, you know? And I'm so possessive of this world, just like I am still in California. And I know Wayne is in New Hampshire. We bleed green. You know, my, our retired chief, Nancy Foley, who was on our Warden's Watch podcast, a mentor and a friend of mine said, you know, guys, I, I just bleed green. My blood is green. The thin green line runs in my blood. She would say that in the academy days. And you know what? That's not, that is the truth, you know, for us. And I'm calling for a service. I'm calling my local game wardens four or five times a year at least. And, but lately through COVID and with a smaller patrol presence out in our national forests and our public lands. And I'm up in where I'm literally submit, surrounded by 
not hundreds of thousands, but millions of uncharted wilderness timberlands that people can hunt. It's a needle in a haystack and I'm running across stuff, you know, and people are getting away with a lot of stuff because they know there's less presence out there with all the nightmares COVID has put on us as LEOs nationwide, whatever genre we come from, game warden, state police, highway patrol, secret service, whatever. So no, I'm, I'm going to see a case through and I'm not only going to report it, but you know, kind of the, uh, maybe the OCD and me is going to follow up. And hey, man, yeah. go Taylor, I, I know you're really, really swamped or this Forest Service, uh, you know, uh, supervisor, or this LEO, whatever, and, and see it through because, man, our, our wildlife resources are fleeting yeah. and they are under siege. Um, I talk about that in the new introduction, you know, in Hidden War, the second edition, because, uh, you know, this, this Hidden War, this attack on the Thin Green Line has never been more severe than now worldwide with water being depleted, drought everywhere. Um, so much chaos that's pulling LEOs, like I just said, away from doing what we need to do on the conservation front. So it retired, not retired, unpaid game warden, uh, you know, eyes and ears, uh, a drone on foot, call it what you want, yeah. but that's how it is for me. And Wayne, how about you? Yeah. And John, <clears throat> John's right. I always have a story <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you, you know, everything John said is absolutely true. We bleed green. Uh, two years ago during the pandemic, uh, me and a few friends were just getting ready to go into the woods about 30 minutes prior to a uh, legal shooting and a shot rings out. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, I text, you know, all the wardens uh, as a group and let them know when they respond back and they're going to investigate it and their investigation turns up nothing. Um kind of probably have an idea who it was. So the warden that, that had covers the area when I had a chat with him. Um, but I, I feel like I didn't do enough. I feel like I heard the shot. I'm still sworn in New Hampshire. I'm still a deputy. Uh, I, I could have, you know, pretty much put myself probably where that shot came from in a general area and maybe caught the guy red handed. And that's, that's, that's exactly the scenario you're talking about. Did I do enough? And at this point, you know, I thought those guys would catch the person that did it, to be honest with you, I thought a deer would come in that day and they would do some investigation and be able to do a time of death on it and wrap it up pretty quick. But that isn't the way that case turned. That mm -hmm. deer probably went in the back door for some meat. Um, and then, you know, if they're good and the, the people I know are good at it, you know, they, they leave very little evidence. So that's a, that's a position that I, I wish I had done more. We should have said, Hey guys, I got to go check this out, done a walk in and maybe, you know, surprise the guy. There's so many game warden stories about uh, the game wardens that came before us, uh, Arthur Muse, uh, and actually I get this from the guy that it happened to Arthur Muse was a. You know, they have a mountain named after Arthur Muse in northern New Hampshire. That's how iconic a game warden he was. And this guy didn't have any food, just moved to the area. He went out and shot a deer up near Christine Lake. And as he was gutting it, uh, he hears a guy from behind says, can I help you with that? And he turns around and there's the game warden. And he's like, oh, crap. So um, he asked him why he shot it. He goes, I don't have any food. So he goes, well, let's load up the deer finish gutting it, load up the deer in my cruiser and down to his house. He went, Arthur went in that house and he looked at all the cupboards and they were all empty. So he took the deer. He didn't let him have it. He wrote him a ticket. He went and saw the local, we had local stores back then, a little small store in Stark and uh, went and saw the manager, the owner of that and told him, you know, whatever this guy needed that he would pay for. And he went back and told the guy, go down and buy some food at the store. Um, and you have a, you have a credit there. And credit. Arthur paid for that guy's food. He still wrote him the ticket. He still took his deer, but, and that, that the guy that actually happened to told me that story. 
Uh, wow. And it was funny because I know the lady that owned that. She's in her 80s now, owned this general store. And I told him, hey, Mary Fleury says to say hi. And he goes, did she tell you the story? And I'm like, what story about Arthur Muse? And <laughs> so I confirmed it with Mary. And yeah, that's just one of those iconic stories. And, you know, I wish I had been that game warden that day to walk in on that shot and said, hey, you need help gutting that deer. Um, so, yeah, there's some regret there. There's always uh, everything we do. I think there's re- right. Regret. We look back. on. Well, I, I, <laughs> and I know John, I've talked when he's been on my show about like how someone that's not a game or someone that like me, just obviously the majority of me are people like me, where it's just, you're out there doing your thing. How do I get more involved? I, I can't necessarily bleed the thin green line because I never, I was never a game boy per se, but I, but I respect the green line. I respect mm. our wildlife and conservation. Like how do people like me get more involved? Whether it's anytime Barry and I are fishing, we see fishing line on the bank or wrapped up in some fly tied up in a tree. Our first thought is, well, that's going to kill a bird or choke a bird. Right. Let's rip it down. Let's cut it Absolutely. down. So little stuff like that. That's I know helps. Yep. But I mean, there's been, even as a group, when I go hiking and stuff, if I see, Nothing pisses me off more if I'm going hiking and see like a bag of Doritos just blown in the wind. Right now, I'm not going to risk my life if it's on a ledge somewhere per se. Right, but it's little things like that. I think people don't realize that how much help that is mm-hmm. to, like, I, I, where I live here in Massachusetts. Anytime our town's really good with the Facebook groups and stuff, but if there's a hurt deer or a bird or some car thinks it, people report that. And then the local police or animal control will come and make sure the deer is. I know recently a mother deer was killed and the baby deer wasn't leaving the body inside the road and they came and they brought down whoever the local wildlife was to help get that deer out and safe. And there is a duty for us to be ourselves, enjoy what we do as a life. But whether you're a doctor or a mom, a dentist, wherever you are, we all have a duty, I think, to at least attempt to preserve Mother Earth, right? Like it just seems weird that so many people don't care enough to just do the little things. Like pick up trash. And the little things help so much, John, and that's what it is. Uh, Every state in the union has an Operation Game Thief, a turn in a poacher, uh, wildlife crime stoppers. I'm on the board of International Wildlife Crime Stoppers as a director. Those are the things you can help and help financially, too, because all the, a lot of those are nonprofit uh, entities that help. International Wildlife Crime Stoppers is actually a sponsor with Warden's Watch, but it's more of getting the message out to everybody that there's a, a place that you can help financially. And we also have a website that says how to report in all 50 states and the provinces. So you click on that state and it gives you the 1-800 number. And again, see something, say something. You know, if, if, if it feels wrong, it's wrong probably. And we don't mind looking into that that stuff for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely in doing your little part, pick, picking up the trash, picking up the fishing line. It all helps for the greater good. Pickup trucks. I always it, it blows my mind. Most of the <laughs> trash that you find is unintentional. I swear. Yep. Um, yeah. out the back of a pickup truck and we've all seen yeah. it, you know, I got a nice tonneau cover, but, uh, you know, I'm probably guilty of it too. When it's not on that, that something flies out. I mean, I, w- I was behind a trash truck going to the dump the other day and it was what a big 18 wheeler and things kept flying out and it was sending me, you it's know, because a little thing here and a little thing there. And as I passed them, I jotted down the number on the truck and, you know, I made a call and I said, Hey, your truck, you know, it was covered. 
but there was stuff flying out of it. And this is from this exit to this exit, just to let them know. Cause I, I don't think they intentionally do that because it was covered. It just it wasn't covered well. So, you know, those little things help an owner because he certainly doesn't want that reputation going to the landfill. Right. So every little thing like that helps. And I think if, if we all do a little part, boy, just think of what we can get done. Well, it's the other thing too. It's, I don't know if there's a time on this, uh, these episodes, but what I love about <laughs> Joe Rogan or podcasts like yours <laughs> or mine, that when you put a, the fact that Joe Rogan every other week or week has a guest on there that talks about the, the benefits of hunting or yes. conservation or anti that not polluting water or whatever it is. The fact that these different podcasts like ours and everyone else's that does this, what you're, you're putting a light on something that I wish there was a brighter light. Right. But the fact that people so like someone like Joe Rogan, who can talk to the, whoever he wants, honestly, still chooses to put a, and I say no name uh, because some of these topics like conservation, people are like, oh, unless it's Ted Nugent, I don't know about hunting. I don't know. Yeah. If it's not Cameron Hayes or Ted Nugent yeah. or someone with that type of that type of uh, outreach, no one cares. But when he puts on these different scientists or conservationists or mm. – and it's like you listen to these 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 regular people talk, you're blown away by the fact that this these people have platforms to still push out these really good agendas that a lot of people are neglecting. Yeah. It, you know, John, that's critical. And when you said you don't bleed green, I'm going to, you know, I'm basically going to say that you do. And here's why. Right. And this is what happened on the Joe Rogan podcast to such good effect for our thin green line is he said, I had no idea this was going on. I had to talk about this issue with you being a cannabis guy and being an elk hunter. It blows my mind after meat eater and hearing that. And he goes, I'm part of the thin green line and everybody needs to be. And it's not a game warden thing, man. It's an everybody thing. And Wayne and I have been talking about this on the thin green line podcast. You're doing as much good, possibly more than some game wardens, not to disparage anybody because you're in so many different areas of the world where you and Barry might take off and do a side trip and go fly fishing in Austria on a tour. And you see some <clears throat> gill netting or poison pollution or something going on. And you're reporting that. And Wayne and I can tell you, we don't say we're the thin green line for nothing, because when you look at the stats of number of game wardens nationally, internationally, if it was just up to game wardens to solve wildlife crime and put a dent in the destruction of our resources, we lost the battle 200 years ago. It's right. you. It's Joe. You know, it's all these different non-game warden guests we have on that we hear on your podcast, right? Um, that we have on our thin green line. So no, you guys are a huge part of this, man. And I'm grateful um, and the more we can shed light, like you said, through Joe's platform, your platform, our platform, any level of platform is a good thing. And you're doing a lot for Absolutely. future generations, man. And kudos. Keep it up. I remember asking you the first time you were on my podcast back in what, 2021. Yeah. And so the first, I asked you about the recruiting process yeah. for game wardens today. Has your opinion of that changed at all in terms? Because you had mentioned just now with this one where you guys are understaffed, underfunded, but like – what is being done now? Because these problems are only going to get worse, right? Like, how is like how do you recruit people to not only leave from the front, but how do you recruit people to bring money in to these causes? You know, one of the thing is is just getting conservation to people that love the outdoors on their radar. I mean, so many people don't even know what a game warden does. We keep right. revisiting this on our podcast. You're going to see it, you know, when the documentary we're in post-production on, we really get into the basics before we go into the issues of the nation that we're facing right now, because people have no idea, you know, the depth of it. They think we check hunting licenses. They think we check fishing licenses. We validate a deer, you know, we go teach hunter safety and we're with the kids. 
And that is beautiful stuff. And it is what we do, but it's a microcosm of, you know, the comprehensive role that a game warden has to play now doing everything an LEO does, not just the wildlife stuff. So um, being a game warden has never been more challenging, but I think more interesting. And I know in California in my old agency, um, we're not having trouble hiring people so much. It's just finding the right people that have enough outdoor experience to be successful out there, to be comfortable around people with guns all the time, but realizing that 95 plus percent of those people with guns are not foes, they're right. friends, you know, but if you haven't been around that lifestyle and you've seen what police deal with, with people with guns on the average, it's a scary proposition to be a game warden checking a fishing spot or way back deep in the woods, unless you're comfortable there. So <clears throat> our biggest challenge is finding those people that are into that. But when we do, we usually get them for a whole career, right? Wayne, we get them to stay mm. with an agency. Uh, you know, they do 20, 25, 30 years. They, they finish it out because we don't do it for the money. We do it for the passion of what we believe in and, and the spirituality of being out there. Um, so I think it's still a great, great job to go into even through the, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, the polarization we have, the border issues we have, the uh, COVID lockdowns and how that's incentivized a lot of wildlife crime. There is a lot of youth suddenly with a resurgence of conservation because of COVID. Um, yeah. Because, you know, urban families were starting to educate and say, oh man, the supply chain might be shut down. There may be nothing in the grocery store. I might not even be able to make it to the grocery store in two weeks with these nightmares I'm hearing about. So I got to get a hunting license. I got to be ready to, you know, hunt an animal to feed my family. I got to maybe defend myself, God forbid, with a firearm. So now I've been an anti-gun, anti-hunter, but now I'm going to do that. And we noticed this through that whole, you and I talked about it, I think on the first time I was on your show, that was starting up COVID when Wayne and I were launching. And one of the first things we learned, 30 to 40% increase in hunter safety certifications and gun purchases and ownership across the entire nation from everybody during that, that first four months of lockdown in 2020. And so the only positive in the shit show of a global pandemic and lockdown that has put everybody in such a bad way, that was a positive for conservation. That was a positive for the thin green line. And I always like you and like Wayne, we always play to the positives, right? right. We can have 10 shitty things happen today, but man, hey, we got another person on the thin green line. We got a brother, a sister, here we are. And we're going to keep pushing that message. And I think that's, that's where that's where we're moving forward with hopefully a lot more good game wardens nationally. It's a great profession still to go into, I believe. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, awesome. I really appreciate it, John, you coming on and sharing things, very inspirational. You know, I think of things I, I make my son listen to this every now and then this is one I'm going to make him listen to this morning. He was looking for a black shirt. It's black day because they're going, uh, the hockey team has to dress in a suit coat and they're all going black out. So he was looking for a black shirt. And that just, uh, again, I, I liked what you said about, you know, leaders dress as leaders. Um, you know, I'm very conscious when I teach college, uh, that I dress appropriately for the college, um, that, that, that type of thing. Um, cause I think you're hundred percent right. So there's a lot of inspirational things you brought to this podcast today. And that's what's that's what I love about the thin green line. It, it goes outside our wheelhouse and, uh, gets people to support conservation, law enforcement, support conservation, uh, guys like you, the, you know, the band, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's a great unique way to do it. And I enjoy it. Yeah, it's easy to do it too. That's why I don't get when people aren't very just pick up the trash or just find a hobby mm -hmm. out in the woods. Or yeah. It's just another thing too on the leadership thing, especially for your son, you don't have to be in charge of a security company or uh the lead doctor. Like anyone could 
present themselves as a leader if you just look the part. And I think if I one of the things I loved in college and stuff and high school is my parents always saying, hey, look the part. Look like you belong. Yep. And that's why I've always respected the even like, like why are you wearing cufflinks? It's you're uh, you're in eleventh grade. Well, I'm just I'm just telling you right now. I'm doing a presentation. I gotta look the part, right? Ooh, and so, tight. yep. It, you're just like it's just so much out there where it just look the part and take pride in yourself. Yeah, and we're missing that because I see that with college students day in and day out, and I tell them. Well, it's like they promote this uh, live at Zoom now because the teacher is sick or doesn't want to come in, but wear your pajamas. It's like <laughs> I can only imagine if I. This is how sick I am. Like if I was had to, was in school at the time, and I had to zoom in during the pandemic. I would still, or my parents still would have made me dress up like I was going to school. Yeah. Yeah. Say so somebody today, unshaved beard. Like I'm shaving today for this. I'm just like, well, I don't want someone to watch this and be like, oh, this guy's terrible leadership. He looks like Grizzly Adams, or like he looks like a. <laughs> yeah, and you're so not just, just like. Yeah, you, you're not. Seeing- you have to present yourself. People are always eyes on you, and again, look good, feel good. You're gonna. Put that perception out there that you are that person, and yeah, it's it, it's I, I'm I'm just very I wish kids today and maybe they will turn around. I mean, it's going to come up to the next generations of parents and leaders to tell these kids, hey, we we owe it to our children, these future generations, to help them and show them to be the best versions of themselves. Because if they're not, we're going to just become these third world countries. And honestly, the trajectory of this country right now, it feels like that sometimes. Hugely important. You couldn't have said it better, man. And, uh, you know, like you said, it's just, it's always good to have a friend on. And this has been a fantastic conversation, a special one for us. And you know what? It's gone to where this might be a two-parter, given a good conversation we've had, which we've only done with Barry before. So, yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Thanks for being on, brother. No, I'm good. Awesome. Thank you, John.